Hello and welcome to a new episode of Other Record Labels, where we talk about the art and culture of running an indie record label. I'm your host, Scott Orr. Thank you so much for joining me um, as we have a new episode today talking with the incredible Secretly Group, and we're going to get into that in a second. You remember um, a couple episodes ago, I was talking about just the incredible fact that today or this week or this month, somewhere in the world, there was a record label starting who in five or 10 years from now would be this big iconic record label. I mean, it's just a hypothetical, but it's just a an incredible thing to think about as we grow this community and as, as I discover more and more people who are thinking about starting a record label, who have just started a record label in 2020 or um, have been running a record label for a really long time. I wanted to share with you this email I got and, and I've mentioned before, I, I really do get like a lot of emails from you guys and it's so exciting to hear about the all of the different stages and, and dreams that where people are at with their label. It's so exciting. But here's one I got from a guy named Jim and I asked him if I could share this, but I'll read you just a portion of it that I thought was really cool. Um, he, he just got into the podcast with the Jag Jaguar episode and then he says, I started a tiny label back in 2010 to help out my local scene in the UK. Life took hold around 2014, and aside from a few releases, it's been mostly dormant since then. Listening to the podcast has inspired me to regroup and get back in the game, so I just wanted to say thanks for reminding me how fun it can be to run a label. Uh, That was, I mean, poof, that was incredible. Waking up to an email like that is such a cool thing. And like I said, there's so many people at so many different stages of this um, running or starting a record label. Um, And it's so great to hear of someone who has a 10-year-old label. um, And, you know, we get so hyped and so excited about starting a label. And then life takes hold, like Jim says. And then things just kind of slow down. But then there's seasons where they pick back up again. So I'm so excited that for Jim and his label and hopefully in in 10 years from now, it'll be this huge, iconic label and he won't even return my calls. Anyhow, um, today's, you know, speaking of huge, iconic labels, we're we're talking with um, Secretly. Oh, before I get to that, I do want to mention, if you are this person who is trying to revitalize your 10-year-old label um, or you're someone who wants to start a label, and doesn't know where to start. I have collected some resources and we're getting more, but we've collected some resources for people like you at otherrecordlabels.com. Heck, it's for everybody. So go to otherrecordlabels.com and we have a checklist on how to start a record label that you can download for free, as well as a guide from some of the labels that we've spoke to over the years. And you can get that all at otherrecordlabels.com. A couple weeks ago, we talked with Jag Jaguar Records. They are a part of this group called Secretly Group. And it is like a kind of a, a, a group of labels that have come together under one roof called Secretly Group. And there are labels like Dead Oceans and Jag Jaguar and Secretly Canadian and the Numero Group. And... Um, I think that I got that label name right. Anyway, and then um, at the time of recording this, we recorded this in this early in the spring of 2020, and it was honestly like a couple weeks before it was announced that Ghostly International, who we've also had on the show, who's an f- incredible label, um, are now coming under that umbrella as well. They share resources. People don't get laid off. It's it's a really cool thing, um, and uh, so now Ghostly, and that was a shock to me, and and of course the guy didn't let on when I was talking with them. Um, but here I'm talking with 
Darius and Chris from Secretly Group. I hope you enjoy this interview. Just a heads up, this is like a conference call that spans across the entire continent, so there might be a little bit of a delay. Um, let me, uh, we're going to roll. Let me ask you, um, I'll, I'll just go ahead and ask you and then you guys can, uh, whoever wants to take the answer is, uh, it's totally up to you. But I, I, you know, like doing, um, doing some research and kind of going over the label and the labels and, um, I, I kind of assume that when you reach a certain level in your field that as an individual, like all self doubt and insecurity goes away. Is that true? Like, does the imposter syndrome dissipate over time? <laughs> no, I, I, I haven't no. come to that time yet. We're, we still <laughs> yeah. feel like imposters. Really? <laughs> That's too bad. Yeah. Truly. Really? Oh man. Well, well no, it, I, I think not only does it not dissipate, but you also, you know, your, your goals become elastic. And so you, you move uh, the goalpost. You start to become an imposter in new arenas. <laughs> oh, well, that's, I mean, I guess that's encouraging. It's, it's discouraging in a way, but it's also good to know that we should all just kind of give up the, the chase of trying, you know, that's great. I feeling like you arrived. You never arrived. Right. There's no okay. arrival. There's ever. <laughs> <laughs> this is a short interview. I think people have already turned off. <laughs> uh, in, in my let's go let's go to the history in my interview with Eric uh, we talked about Jack Jaguar and he gave us a bit of a history on the, how the label got started can you help fill in some of the gaps and and let us know how these three labels came to, together and it really really quick um, this is a podcast right That's is this correct. a recording yeah. or is it more uh, are you are you transcribing okay no yeah this so, is a, uh, a podcast and it will be uh, like long form as the conversation goes, unless there's something you want me to take out. Okay. Okay. Good enough. So, um, uh, Darius, you want to start? Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll just, you know, I think parallel, uh, histories, um, roughly in 95, 96, um, Jag Jaguar and Secret of the Canadian started at the same time and had no relationship with each other. Mm. Um, Jag Jaguar, as Eric shared with you, um, started in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, and I was, um, the one who started it and I had multiple jobs at the time. I was sort of in denial of dropping out of college. Mm -hmm. Um, and at the same time, and Chris, you should share how it started. Speak of the Canadian started, um, in Bloomington, Indiana. Yeah, the same. Yeah, the same story. I mean, it was like we started secretly. We were all um, either going to college or working at the college. Myself, my brother Ben, uh, and friends Eric and Jonathan, um, and we we were all you know, deeply involved in in music culture. Um, either you know, as fans, but also we were promoting shows. We were very active at college radio, and we were trying to find ways to get involved in the process more deeply, um, similar to Darius. And we, we took a leap. We, we, we pulled some money and we, we, we put out a few releases and around the same time that Darius did. And we became aware of one another. I, I heard your music Darius through a mutual friend who was playing, um, a lot of your music at, at the local community radio and a few of your bands were traveling through Bloomington 
Um, and I was, I was fans of those bands and, uh, yeah, we became, we became friends. And then we started, uh, when secretly started to distribute other record labels, there, there, there were four partners, uh, in secretly, we had a lot of manpower and we were trying to find ways to get distributors to, uh, give us more, um, more bandwidth and the, the, the easiest, the fastest track that we could find for that was to have more new releases. We reached out to Darius and said, Hey, would you like for us to be your sales force and we'll distribute your albums globally as we, as we develop our, uh, international distribution infrastructure. And he jumped at that. And that gave us uh, an opportunity to get to work together professionally. Um, and I think from there, after doing that for a few years and many late night phone calls and just kind of daydreaming sessions about how to, how to build, uh, build a, you know, a, a company from the ground up, Darius and I became close and um, aligned on a lot of issues and, uh, you know, the, the topic and came he, up for, yeah, and he, talked me into, he, talk, yeah he, talk, he talked me into moving to Bloomington, Indiana. <laughs> um, so that was, uh, I mean, in, in many ways, like Chris was describing, you know, um, secretly Canadian, um, maybe, maybe as a product of um, just a greater number of partners, but also I would say just more courage. Um, secretly Canadian had developed its business um at a faster clip than, than Jack Jaguar had. And yes. I was a one person shop at the time and, you know, the secret of Canadian, um, was, was Eric and Jonathan and Ben and Chris. And, um, they were thinking ahead about distribution. This is pre digital. You know, this is only when really at a time in the nineties when really it's all about compact discs. I mean, there was some vinyl, but it was really mostly about compact disc sales. Sure. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I think also that's, you know, one part of our connection was, you know, I, I booked the most horrible tour for the Curious Digit. They played second story in Bloomington. Um, the promoter was your housemate. Um, they they crashed at your place, and there's a connection there. And then also, mm -hmm. um, you know, from that we started talking, and um, you know, then you were on tour with Songs of Ohio with Jason Molina. And mm -hmm. I was the promoter in Charlottesville, and we met in person then. And so mm -hmm. it just started from there. And then lots of late night phone calls, you know, lots of kvetching about production and stuff like that. When you're when you're thinking about coming together, and now that there's three labels and there's a group, why not start a new label with a brand new name and and, and amalgamate everybody? I think we were pretty attached to the. To the labels that we were growing, they, they, they were our babies. You know, sure. they, they in hindsight, you look back, I was like, oh, there were only like maybe eight releases on, on Jack Jaguar <laughs> at the time, or that were had been envisioned, and on secretly maybe only eleven. Um, but they were they were our babies. You know, we put sure. a lot of creativity into them. We were re we were very precious. Um, everything we did was imbued with with uh, a, a, a boatload of righteousness. <laughs> and, and and passion and po and poetry, you know. In hindsight, we look back and it's probably it's probably slightly foolish, but I think it's actually important that it could be so so um, kind of deep in your own myth mythological waters in the, in those early early days, you know. So now, do you do you 
do you view them all three labels as having their own individual voice or aesthetic asking about today they, they still are distinct from each other i'm not sure exactly how they have maintained that uh, distinctiveness mm -hmm. but um we we still think of the three labels as three different labels and and i should also say you know um you know, the, the short history we gave you of Secret Canadian and Jack Jaguar, you know, sort of um, becoming close, um, you know, very early on there, just to fill in the history gaps, um, at some point, um, you know, Chris said, hey, I'll, I'll become your partner, because, you know, him and I were talking about, you know, him um, becoming uh, a co-equal with me mm -hmm. as partners in, in Jack Jaguar. And, you know, he said, yes, but you have to move to Bloomington. Mm -hmm. And so I moved to Bloomington. And then there was this time early on when Duke of the Canadian was, you know, four individuals um, owning it. Um, and Jack Jaguar, two individuals owning it. Um, and there's only overlap with Chris. Um, and that was a very natural way for, for each of the labels to sort of keep their own voice because there were different decision makers on either side, except for Chris being common to both. And then over time that um, uh, changed and, and more often now it's the same ownership um, between Suka the Canadian and Jack Jaguar. Um, and, you know, two of the Suka the Canadian partners um, decided to pursue other endeavors. And so it just became Ben and Chris Swanson. Um, and, um, you know, now it's Ben Swanson, Chris Swanson and, and myself who are three owners of both Suka the Canadian um, and Jack Jaguar. And we've also invited Phil Waldorf to be our partner too in those two labels. And he is someone we started Dead Oceans with, I think roughly, was it 2006, Chris, or 2007? 2007, yeah. Yeah, 2007. So, you know, Jack Jagger and Secret Canadian were sort of brothers, sisters to each other. Um, you know, over time, the ownership became common. But um, it was in 2007 that Dead Oceans was born with a fourth partner, um, Phil Waldorf. Um, and now, currently, Phil Waldorf, Ben Swanson, Chris Swanson, and myself, we are the four owners of the three labels. Um, Dead Oceans, Jack okay. Jaguar, and Super Okay. Canadian. There's a little bit of... And we all... And we all we're all, like, very involved in all three labels. Okay. Um, I see. Yeah. Um, there's, yeah. There's, and I think that's what's changed from the beginning phase to the to the later phase. Like the beginning phase, there was more of different um, different tribes. I see. Now, um, as far as the the ownership, it's 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 one one group of us, um, and we're relying more and more on, on emerging leaders within our company to to help keep the distinctive. That's great. Cultural flavors of each of the labels. I want to. I want to ask. Uh, there's like, uh, from my perspective, there's a little bit of a in intimidation factor when you have this group of companies. Are you conscious about maintaining an indie ethos? Like, how do you not become big sellouts? <laughs> That's really important to us. Yeah. Um, I, I think we don't want to be big for big sake. Okay. We, we never thought that, you know, um, the best way to make a cultural impact in this world, you know, whether it's in music or other areas was to just be Disney or be massive. <laughs> um, we, we always, we felt it was more interesting to contribute to culture from, from small and medium sized company perspectives where we're close to working on the level with artists. Mm. 
But we also know that unless you pay attention to scale advantage um, and, you know, what size brings you um, as far as advantages in the marketplace and being able to do better work for your artist partners and, and um, you know, uh, being able to have more cultural impact, um, you're, you're going to not be successful. So we, we went down the path of let's keep these distinctive, awesome, freaky gardens going and humming, but let's all share the same soil, the same water, the same sunshine. Wow. Let's create a community of equals and achieve scale advantage that way. And that, that's been our ethos. That's amazing. That's great. But you are, you are saying that officially there, there are no plans for a, a theme park, a secretly theme park. Is that what you're saying? By the Disney reference? <laughs> I think people would go to that. Let's yeah, well, no. like Branson. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Uh, my 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 three year old son would love us to go in that direction, but um, no plans for that. What are the benefits? Uh, you were talking about scale a little bit. Uh, what are the benefits of being a group of labels? Well, Chris was you know describing it very early on when we first started. Um, it made it easier for us to um, collect revenues from distributors getting, you know, Chris, you should describe some of those early growing pains, you know, in the nineties. Yeah. I think, I think in the early years that we had kind of two, two things that uh, were, um, were really driving us. Um, One was uh, trying to um, complete our kind of global map of distribution, Mm. having a distributor in every country. Um, you know, first in North America and Europe and then in, you know, and then in the, uh, in Southeast Asia and, um, and South America. And, you know, as we were doing that, uh, we really needed to have, um, a diversity of titles, um, a lot of, a lot of newness and we needed a lot of fresh release in order to do that. Um, and so the having, um, working with multiple labels really helped there. Another thing that we were really obsessed with in the early days when we were doing CDs was trying to drive the cost of our CDs down. I see. You know, back then we weren't really sophisticated. We weren't very sophisticated marketers. Um, <laughs> we, we primarily, you know, we were, we, we were worked on our relationship with artists. I'm really kind of connecting and speaking their language and trying to figure out what their needs are. Um, manufacturing the production aspect of it. Mm. Um, and distribution. It was three, three real key things. And production was the primary cost. We didn't have a lot of other costs outside sure. of production. And probably the first run of, run of 1,000 CDs we did probably cost us three, four dollars a unit. Right. And over right. the course of the next, over the course of the next five years, we we kept trying to be like, how do we get lower manufacturing prices? Um, that was, and it was, you know, every quarter we were able to drop, you know, hmm. five, ten cents here or there um, by one having more volume. Um, to uh, take to our vendors, to you know, finding the best vendors, pitting them against each other, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, you know, the more volume we had, the, uh, the the lower our rates went. We started to even handle. We created a production company called Bellwether Manufacturing, uh, and we started to handle uh, the production for our distributed labels, which our dis- secretly distribution family kept growing as we added more and more labels each year. And we were able to get very low rates. Hmm. And so finding that, that was, that, was a, that was really critical in our first, I'd say, five years. 
maybe even 10 years. I, I, um, I read that you were doing manufacturing in the early days. Were you like actually, uh, did you have a plant or that you were make, making, duplicating CDs? How did that work? Brokering. We were okay. brokering. Okay. We were just taking, we we're just, you know, basically taking all the volume of, you know, the, the manufacturing needs of not only Jack Jaguar and Secret of Canadian, but I all see. the labels we distributed and, you know, said, Hey, plant, we, we can, you know, all together guarantee you, you know, 500,000, you know, CDs to be manufactured. You know, what can you do to, to, you know, help lower the cost for us? And it was a very competitive time um, among CD plants and they, you know, chased business that was aggregated in that way. Right. And that um, helped us, um, you know, create that scale advantage that we then, you know, shared with everyone we were, um, you know, manufacturing for it, it lowered everyone's manufacturing costs. And, um, it also helped us with cash flow in those early days. Um, we, we were able to benefit from having that cash flow through us for, for manufacturing. Sure. Um, so, um, it was, it was good, um, in that way. If it, if this system has worked out, has, has there been thought about more imprints down the road? Like, <laughs> Is that is that something like to 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 keep adding more labels or to, to coming up with genre based labels? We, yeah, we talk about it all the time. Yeah, um, yeah, um, and not so much. You know, we 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 daydream about developing new labels and or partnering with existing labels. Um, it's uh, but I, I think the one thing that that we have to keep balancing that keeps us kind of on our uh, um, that keeps us balanced. Mm-hmm is um by keeping by keeping our release schedule really tight and, and focusing on 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 uh on quality over quantity sure um yeah. label side um it allows us to give um an enormous amount of tlc that's um, great. to each yeah. to each project you know and yeah. so even though even though you know we're, we're very omnivorous in our tastes and we can imagine imagine doing many different things. We do try to, um, keep it, keep it reined in, you know, cause we don't want to, we're very conscious of not having the quality of, um, of care per release go down. Mm. Um, yeah. Even if, even if it benefits our bottom line, uh, let's, let me ask you about the music. Yeah. I want to, I want to go back to the, the early and mid two thousands. I remember learning about secretly Canadian because I was a huge Danielson family fan back in the day. I remember mm. associating that cool. label with weird and more adventurous music, certainly not mainstream. It took a few years for that Sufian style of music to become, you know, Grammy nominated or Oscar nominated. Was it a struggle promoting intrepid music during that time? Like back in the early and mid two thousands? Struggle. I don't know. Well, it, it was always a struggle yeah. <laughs> from, the, from, the, from my perspective at the, at the beginning. Um, uh, I think because we were based in the Midwest, um, we had such low overhead. Um, right. We had such modest expectations for ourselves at the outset. Um, we sort of, um, you know, it was lucky we weren't really on the coast, we weren't sort of, you know, buying into what labels should be. We were just kind of going where we naturally felt labels should be. And, um, each time we had, you know, each couple of years we had a new milestone of success that, you know, just 
gave us greater and greater self-esteem and confidence. And, you know, I think Danielson family being connected with Secretly Canadian, you know, contributed to that, you know, eventually, um, you know, helping distribute uh, Sufjan Stevens' label as Not a Kitty. Mm-hmm. And that really contributed to Secretly Distribution's success. Um, uh, you know, I think um, it was always hard work, but um, we kept on feeling, you know, um, sort of stable and, and constant organic growth every step of the way. And so we kept on, you know, contributing to our own self-esteem and confidence that we were doing something right. Mm-hmm. So it never felt like a struggle in the sense of why are we doing this? We should quit. This is really hard. Um, maybe because we didn't really start from a place of great expectations. Right. But do you ever feel, do you feel vindicated at all now? Like as, as you know, with Grammys and stuff, like there must be a little bit of that. Not really, because it just, it feels, it feels just like it's a, it's a full, it's a cultural trend, you know, it's our other indie labels are enjoying those same sort of, you know, that's not due to the work, you know, it's like, you know, there were also periods of time where indie bands refused, you know, you were a sellout if you (laughs) had a sync in a TV show or a commercial, you know, and then that changed, like, there are big cultural shifts way beyond us right, that right. we recognize. That's you know? good. That's fair. Yeah, and we just try to do point. the best work. We try to do the best work possible within within those, you know, yeah. uh, within that framework yeah. at, a, at, a, at any given phase. Uh, can you tell? Yeah, and, and for us, yeah. like, I, I was going to just say, for us, like, we've always um, viewed success as just being able to have um, more capability the next day. Mm. So, you know, mm. every day we wake up or every year we, we, we start the cycle again of, of our work and we have a little bit more capability. We have a little bit more resource. We have a little bit more impact. We have um, a little bit more expertise to support our artists. Um, and, 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 you know, that is for us been the constant um, uh, measure of success. Yeah. And yes, it's, it's, it's in a way it, it is, it affirms that, we're doing something right. Um, when you do get that big recognition from the Grammys, um, or, you know, the certain records really break out and the market says, Hey, this is really a worthy cultural contribution. This is making an impact that does, um, feel good. But I think Chris is right. I don't know if it vindicates us. I don't know if we ever really, <laughs> you know, had a chip on our shoulder. Like, why aren't you paying attention to us? Sure, you know, sure. um, um, yeah. Can you tell me how uh, the secretly publishing works? Because that's also not necessarily artists on your labels. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. We started off that way. Um, I think in the early days, um, you know, kind of going back to talking about synchronization and TV and film and, and ads and video games, um, we, we started to see a pattern that um, most of um, – most of the uh, sync placements that we were getting were a result of the work that we or our sync partners were doing label side. Um, that publishers weren't really bringing in a lot of opportunity. Okay. Um, a lot of new, a lot of new opportunities because most of the publishers out there were very large. Sure. Too, their scale was too large. They I had you know, millions and millions of copyrights to look after. Um, that was one note, and then there was another note that we were seeing a lot of a lot of the um, artists we work with didn't have publishing representation, um, and, and we're like, huh, you know, we could 
do this. And if we have a, a special emphasis on sync, um, any new publishing clients that we have that we work with that we don't represent Masterside as a label, we could maybe um, provide some a real service mm. because uh, synchronization it was starting to really um, become a, a larger piece of, of the pie for artists. Mm. And so we're like, ah, oh, there's a window here. And so about ten years ago, we started the publishing company. We started first to um, we got built built the infrastructure for our company by doing deals with artists that we were working with label side. And then after maybe three years of that, once we felt like, okay, we've got a good structure here, we can now go to um, artists that we don't work with otherwise, and, and, we, can, and we can represent them. Mm. And over the years, um, and the, the percentage of writers that Secretly Publishing represents that we also work with label side has gone down. Um, and so, um, but yeah, it's... it's, it's how, um, how has synchronization a, evolved over the past several years? Well, it's, it's gone through many waves, yeah. you know. But I think the latest wave, you know, from the last three years is as, as streaming platforms have gone through a boom period, you know, so have the number of shows and films um, that are being made. And so it feels like, there, you know, there's record number, you know, they've probably grown tenfold versus like four years ago, yeah, the yeah. number of productions being made, maybe 20-fold. Um, we have seen, you know, uh, a big trend that goes along with that, though, and especially as um, the independent sector has gotten to has, has, has gotten to enjoy in a larger percentage of, of the sink, the sinks out there. The prices have gone down okay. per sink I see. as the quantity has gone up. Yeah. So those are two big trends, you know. And now amid quarantine, you know, a national quarantine, <laughs> we, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're dealing with a micro trend right now of like uh, production halting and, and, and sink. True. Sinks, um, we're, we're anticipating to be down considerably this year, but it's still, yeah. that's still in play. Yeah. You yeah. And it's like, um, it's a, it's, it's a, it, it cuts both ways. So like, not only are there going to probably be less synchronization, um, licensing opportunities because productions are shut down, but there'll be more music copyrights in a distressed, you know, economic, um, situation chasing after those smaller number of things, right. um, that are possible, which means the price um, it's probably going to go down if, you, if you're yeah, you know, thinking about it from a supply and demand. Yes. Sense. And there's more uh, musicians at home making more and more music. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that's, that's been a problem, you know, um, <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's been a constant phenomenon for, for, for years now. Like, sure. um, it, it is cheaper to produce music now than it has been before. Right. I, I still think that production companies want quality repertoire by quality frontline artists. Um, and so I don't, I don't, I don't feel like secretly group feels the pinch from, from those kinds of, um, music makers who are doing things cheaply in a jingle house kind of way oh, or whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you about, we talked a little bit about the, uh, the origins of, of the Bonnie Vare record and, and with Jack Jagger, and we talked about that with, with Eric a little bit, but there was still a little bit of gaps. I mean, specifically, I, I mean, I was reading about the, there was a CDR going around of his first record. I mean, can you tell me a little bit about how that came into the, into the label and how that artist came onto the label? 
the CD, uh, the CD that Justin and his manager at the time, Kyle from that sent us went un, unnoticed. Oh, okay. ended up in a oh, so he sent it to the label for, or? Yeah, he sent he sent for Emma an early version of for Emma to the label. Wow. Um, and um, I don't I, I don't know which label it was addressed to. We found it maybe nine months after we signed signed <laughs> and started partnering with him. Um, but uh, where where he ended up on our radar was on uh, Brooklyn Vegan. Fox okay. To Brooklyn Vegan. Okay. Um, yes. Th- you know they posted a few songs. I think it was Creature Fear. Um, was it, or was it my, was it um, my old Kentucky blood, Chris? I can't remember. If it was that or Brooklyn Vegan? You know what? I think Eric it was Brooklyn Vegan. Oh, Eric might have mentioned another blog where he had discovered it on, but or that he had first heard it. But I can't remember. I can't remember what he had said now. Ah, okay. Sorry. I'm pretty sure that I first heard it on Brooklyn Vegan. Started okay. playing it a lot um, in the office, you know, and we all. You know, we're like, wow, this voice, you know, these, these, these lyrics, um, it was, it was really, really special, you know, and we reached out, Justin and I had a few great conversations, Darius, you were up in, you know, you could tell the story of you going up to Montreal. Yeah, I was going up to Montreal to, um, spend time with, uh, Spencer Krug from, um, Wolf Parade and Sunset Rubdown, who we eventually worked with, um, and, you know, Chris was like, hey, you're in Montreal. Justin's in Montreal. You guys should have, you know, connect and have a, have a conversation. Mm. And um, we met outside of the Ukrainian Federation, which is this uh, venue. There's a bar in front of it. I think we had a pitcher or two of beer and we just talked forever. And it was, um, you know, a great, it was my first opportunity to, to hang with Justin and connect with him. And it was, it was a great way to start. Relationship. Were there other labels uh, approaching him at that time? Yeah, he was talking um, to a few other labels, and I know then he went to CMJ somewhere in there. We had put in an offer. There were a lot of labels, a lot of very good labels uh, interested in him. Pitchfork, I think, had already blown the album up mm. um, just right before CMJ. He had a hectic, hectic CMJ. I think it was really stressful for him. Right, and uh, he called. He called uh, us. I talked to him while he was uh, sitting outside the venue of his last show, and said, "Hey guys, I, I don't want to do this dog and pony show anymore. I want to. I want to do it with you guys." Um, mm. And you know, we were ecstatic. It was yeah. a really felt like a big moment for us. You know, just like just a big wow. <laughs> because you know, at that we were used to. We were used to when you find when, uh, the, the process of when bigger labels get in the mix. Yeah. Just all of a sudden getting, well, we had our moment with this artist now. Um, yeah. We didn't get it, you know? And this is a moment where it's like, oh, wow, he chose us. This is amazing. Yeah. That's, that's great. What made that? Because that, we, yeah. we really felt the connection with him, you know, but we didn't know what, what sort of other connections there were being made, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. And in, in hindsight, you know, um, maybe we felt this at the time, too, is why it was so easy for Chris to communicate with Justin and, and why I had that amazing conversation with Justin. Like in hindsight, our values were very aligned as far as you know our Midwest identity, hmm. um, how we thought of approaching, you know, contributing to to culture, making music, getting music out there, and so I think there was just a natural affinity for each other that we didn't have a vocabulary for at the time, um, but 
probably that's what contributed to Justin's gut. Like, Hey, this feels like home to me. Yeah. Do you, do you recall, like, I mean, looking back now, what do you think it was that made that record so successful? Was it, was it the right place at the right time? Or do you think there was, have you, have you thought about that at all? I think two things. One, the quality of the song mm, and, and the sure. production and, and, and the voice. But then it's a, it's a triumph of storytelling, you know, and I think mm. a lot of that, not only was it in, in, intrinsically a great story, um, but it was the, the way the story was told was so great. And I think a lot of that credit goes to um, Justin's first manager, Kyle, um, who really, I think he penned that first bio and with you know the cabin in the woods story, and it was so yeah. it was told so succinctly and and, and economically, and it just it, it, we had never seen a story told that 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 resonated so clearly. You know, that's a story that people will still be telling in thirty years. Yeah, now, you know, yeah. Um, just that cabin in the woods. Well, you know, actually, getting that... over from a, a, a breakup and an illness and a band breakup, also, you know. Oh, totally. Like... That story is used by publicists. Will say when when they're working with an artist, they're like, "We need a story to go along with this album." For example, <laughs> Bonnie Vera Cabin in the Woods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, the best part of the Bonnie Vera story, and 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 uh, I was. You know, I've been following along with, as everyone has, with his career. The best part of that story is is how he not only avoided the sophomore slump with his self titled, but he completely exploded after that record. Uh, and that you just you just don't see that. There's so many times you have that sophomore slump, but um, he completely avoided that. How much pressure were you feeling following up for Emma? Was that a, an exciting time, or or was that a, a stressful time at the label? Both? I wasn't stoked. Were you stressed? I mean, I think the minute we heard it, we were like, oh. Oh, this we're okay. Is, this is amazing. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm well, remembering. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't stressful directly for the release. Um, I think when we heard the record, we were excited. We, we knew, you know, I think we felt very good about um, how it was going to be received. Um, and, and we weren't stressed about whether we could rise to the occasion and... Um, do good work um, with Justin. I think what was more stressful was at the time our company was growing immensely mm. and we were just adding staff. Um, we, we were, you know, revenues were, were, were growing to levels um, where, you know, our older systems weren't really accustomed to it. Um, there was just a lot of, you know, it was sort of in a sense like, um, you know, what, what was, you know, started as a, um, you know, true mom and pop, you know, operation where we kind of grew up all of our systems ourselves. I think we were for the first time starting to um, be perceived as a successful business outside of just the Midwest. Mm. And that just brought a lot of pressures that, that weren't um, pressures we were used to. Um, right. We had to sort of start being more professional in some ways. Uh-huh. Um, so it was stressful in that way. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, oh, I mean, it also creates pressure too. Like when you have, you know, stories of like, Oh wow, this record sold this much in this amount of time and, you know, and it raised this much money and you have employees, you know, um, in the Midwest, um, you know, making, you know, what were hopefully reasonable salaries at the time, but you know, um, you know, we were still, um, not very profitable. We we're still scraping by kind of created those pressures that we didn't really have, you know, a good, 
rhythm of like talking about like, hey, you don't understand a lot of that money that's flowing in for all those record sales, a big portion of it's going to, you know, pay for, for marketing it and, and a big portion of it is going to the artist. And um, we're not swimming in, in buckets of yeah. of gold blooms here, you know. Um how did that uh, success with Bonnie Vare affect the A and R process moving forward? Did were, was there more pressure, or, or did it did it make things a little easier? I think it. I think we always were putting a lot of pressure on ourselves from an A and R standpoint, hmm. um, and. Um, I, th- I feel like we were always trying to, um, our goals and our wise were always elastic, you know, okay. and, and, and constantly we we're, you know, trying to level up. Um, I think we were taken more seriously and we, 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 yeah. we were able to get, get in, we were able to get into conversations or stay in conversations that, um, would have otherwise graduated beyond us <laughs> right. prior to, to Bonavera. You know, he was a proof of concept. You yeah. Know? Oh, for sure. And, yeah. um, and so that was, um, that was nice, you know, and it gave us an opportunity to be a little bit more extroverted, you know, right. at that time we were still very much, still very much a Bloomington, Indiana company. Um, with the exception of our London office, we were, um, we were, you know, very much, we, we took great pride in being landlocked and doing it outside of a, of, of a major market, um, doing it in a small college town. We took great pride in that. Um, and we were starting to, um, um, you know, get, you know, stick our head out of that, uh, out of Bloomington a little bit more. Right. Is there, philosophically speaking, is there a mission statement or a North star you try to follow when you're searching for artists to be a part of your label? We look for iconic voices, you know, um, artistic okay. voices. Yeah. It's not always, yeah. you know, in, in, in the vocal cords, you know, sure. but you know, some sort of artists who have who um, have a distinct artistic voice who has yeah. something to say. Um, artists that um, we're not going to feel compelled to go in and try to, you know, do a uh, makeover. You know, mm-hmm. artists that we're going to trust. We we have a pretty um, pretty soft touch A and R, A and R philosophy. Um, we find artists that we are going to do work that we're generally going to want, you know, that we, that we trust. And, um, that doesn't mean we're not involved in creative conversations, but we're not in there trying to be like, okay, how do we get the artist to do this? You know? Yeah. Um, that's, yeah. We, that's just not, that's not our, our style so much. And then we also, I think in, in the last few years, we started to really look for, um, um, to work with partners that not only are really, um, making beautiful music, but also that maybe have some extra musical qualities as well, you know, mm-hmm. that they're, um, where, where they, they're able to, they're able to express things, um, through other mediums as well. I think that's a common thread in, yeah, that's in the last, true. like, yeah. four or five years. Sure. We we have so many listeners. Uh, I don't want to take too much of your time here, but we have so many listeners who are in the early stages of running a record label or are dreaming of starting a record label. Can you speak to them for a second? What would you tell them, or even what would you tell yourself back in the '96, if you could, about what to expect or 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 how to how to begin your label? I don't know. That's a great question. I don't know what. 
Now, Chris, what would we have done differently, um, knowing what we know now? Um, good question. Think about how you create catalog numbers. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that's great. Because what you start, like, the road you start down is you're, you're stuck with forever. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we created a. We were real sticklers for systems. Okay. Um, yeah. in, in the early days, I, th- I think it really it really helped us. Uh, there, you know, I think when you when you have uh, five partners, once Darius came on board, you know, there's a moment there where we, when we were at our peak, where we had five partners. We had to create systems in order to, you know, not undo things that someone else had done. Yeah. So we were big on creating systems so that we could maybe scale what we do. I think that was critical. Sure. Um, yeah. To to our growth, try to you know try to create create systems, but then also I think the systems were critical to our growth. But then at certain points, those, when those systems become dogma mm-hmm. um and i mean that in a pejorative sense you know um if you get too dogmatic and don't find ways to um to innovate your systems um as the industry or the culture shifts then you may be trapped by your own system you know yeah no that's true but it is that's pretty general no but, i mean yeah we created systems and we wrote down the systems don't just create the systems write them down in a and that way when yeah. you get your first employee your second employee, then you have you, and you have turnover and whatnot. You're able to actually, um, you, you're able to have a, a living. The systems can you know, they can grow and and optimize and whatnot. Well, I imagine it's boring. Be independent. It's, it's not the fun <laughs> stuff to talk about. I imagine <laughs> it allows things to be independent of of you guys. You can go on vacation without everyone freaking out. Mm-hmm. For sure, I think another another really valuable thing is just you know in the first few years of starting a label is go on tour with an artist. Oh, okay. Go I've on tour with before. a band. Yeah. Because I think you know I think because we did that in the early days, you're like, oh wow, this is hard work. <laughs> you know, this is hard. It's often thankless, and you can really understand. Like you could have. 20 great shows in a row, which is like unprecedented, you know, you can have, you can have five great shows in a row where you're just like, then all it takes is one show just on a relative scale, not as exciting as the last one. And all of a sudden the crash is hard, you know, and, Mm. you know, to really, to really try to understand what, um, what musicians that you're working with go through, you know, the risks that they take in order to put themselves out on the line every day. And, you know, that's, that's a, it's a, it's a big deal, you know? Um, and if, if you can't, if you can't, uh, uh, relate to that or empathize with that, it's going to be much harder to, I think, um, that's be able to serve point. the artists you're, you're working for. Yeah. I think, I, I think that was definitely one of the best ways I've, um, learned about how to be a better label or be part of a better label. Was you know, uh, Chris and I, we, we switched off duties being tour tour van driver and tour manager for Black Mountain when they're chasing okay. Coldplay. Um, um, you know, uh, Chris did a lot of touring with Jason Molina. Um, you know, I, I played booking agent for a second. Um, our other partners, um, you know, um, Ben and, and Jonathan, they went on the road with artists as well. Um, I think that's, I think, Chris, that's actually a great suggestion on, on the first thing to prioritize. Mm. 
That's amazing. Guys, thank you so much for doing this. Congratulations on, on such an incredible group of labels and, and, and such incredible success, but also your impact on the industry and, and the people like myself who admire you guys and admire your label and, and admire your artists. Um, thank you so much for, for taking the time to do this. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you've enjoyed that. You can email me at podcast at otherrecordlabels.com if you have something you want to share um, or some good news that you want to share with all of us. Um, and we've also put together a, a Facebook group, um, and it's now like over 300 people who are involved with labels who are well, and DIY artists, not just label people, but uh, mostly label conversations happening over there. And you can get a link to that at our website along with all of our other resources make sure you check out secretly group if you haven't already i know you have though uh and and they're great labels and of course the great artists and releases on their label thanks so much for listening